Financial Residency is proud to bring you Grand Rounds with Dr. Tammy. Each week, Tammy Krause explores a new topic related to achieving financial independence by building and protecting your wealth. She invites guests who are experts in their fields who will share honest and valuable advice on a variety of topics. If you have an idea for a podcast, please email Tammy, that's T-A-M-M-Y, at financialresidency.com. Now grab your front row seat to this week's Grand Rounds. Hi, and welcome back to Grand Rounds. As I told you a couple of weeks ago, this year's focus is going to be about taking back medicine and overcoming burnout. I plan on bringing on several physicians throughout the year to talk about their journeys, to talk about maybe how they pivoted in their career and did something different so they could find the joy of medicine. And as we had on the show a week or two ago, we had someone who left medicine completely. But today I want to welcome Dr. James Young, and he is a family medicine trained hospitalist, but his journey has been a little bit different. And I think he's found the love of medicine again. Welcome to the show, James. Hi, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. You know, we had such a good conversation before I hit record that, you know, I was telling you, I wish I would have had the record button hit before. (laughs) You'll just have to have me back another time. (laughs) Right? (laughs) So you were saying that you started training at Mayo, and then if I'm not mistaken, you went into clinical practice. Is that right? Yeah. So I trained at Mayo in the Department of Family Medicine from 2001 to 2004. And when I came out, I went into family medicine. That's what I boarded and trained in and started off at a clinic in Apple Valley, Minnesota. And about, oh gosh, maybe a month and a half after I started, the group decided that rather than having us follow our own patients in-house, that we would start doing a hybrid hospitalist model. It wasn't called that back then, but that's what it is, I think, now. So we would see our patients in the clinic for you know the majority of the time, but once every four to six weeks, we would cover the hospital. And it would be our job to see all of our group's patients in the morning, do the admissions, discharges, and even critical care follow-ups. So that started up, and that's kind of how my introduction to where I ended up began. Okay. I have mad respect for the clinicians who you know do clinic and nursing home and hospital and all of that. But as a focused hospitalist myself, I cannot imagine trying to practice in all of those various settings in one day. Did that contribute at all to burning out or did you enjoy the variety? I think for me, the reason I made the decision to transition from sort of this full spectrum family medicine practice to the hospital full-time was simply the fact that I felt that I could do more with my patients than I could in the clinic. And I think that there were a number of factors. That was one of the big ones. I think the term is tyranny of time. And I found myself in the clinic space getting more and more frustrated with the fact that by the time the nurses got done with the 527 keystrokes that they had to do to meet the 65 dashboard measures that the organization was tracking at that point, you know, a 15 minute appointment for me turned into a 35 second encounter with a patient in which nothing useful was accomplished other than to frustrate the patient and probably frustrate the clinician because there's nothing we could do. You know, there's only so much you can do in a very short period of time to manage the diverse and oftentimes very significant medical problems that a lot of patients walk into the clinic with. You know, I will admit that my temperament was just not there for that. I felt like I was not doing anything useful for anybody, that I was not being able to practice the type of medicine that I wanted to practice, and that I was, to be honest, told 
that I would be practicing when I got into the profession. And uh, really that I had the responsibility that was kind of drilled into me to practice. So, but in the hospital, I felt like, gosh, you know, this is great. I could go down to the doc's lounge, grab a cup of coffee, talk to the nurses, find out what's going on, check the x-rays, check labs, and not have to worry that there were five other people waiting. And so I made the decision in, oh God, when was it? Seems like forever now, probably 07 to get out of the clinic and transition to hospital medicine. Can you talk about some of those feelings that you had when you were at the height of burnout? Anger, depression. I mean, what were you feeling? Boy, all those things, all those things. A lot of just frustration, helplessness. I, you know, I've experienced burnout a few times in my career, actually. I mean, I, I, you know, we talked about this in the warm up, but I personally and professionally believe that we look at burnout as somehow it is a unique disease that doesn't follow any of the rules of mental health, neuropsychology, neurology, or anything. You know, we look at depression, anxiety, or as disorders that can go into remission, but then recur, they can be triggered back into recurrence, you know, but somehow burnout, which is a form of emotional trauma, uh, somehow we don't look at it that way. We look at it as strep throat. And if you take a few days off, drop your shift counts, you know, take some time away, maybe, you know, watch a couple of self-help videos on YouTube that you'll be okay. And you can go back to being, you know, working at a full tempo, just like you've walked off a sprained ankle. And I don't think that's what this is. And I I really truly wish that we as a profession would stop looking at it that way, because as somebody who's, you know, and I've been pretty open about this on social, you know, on our Facebook group, as someone who is in the very, very darkest hole of this, (laughs) A few times. Yeah, it's a serious problem and we need to do better about managing it. But to to your question, each time I've felt this feeling, I've kind of started sliding into that hole. You know, it's been anger. It's been sadness. It's been anxiety, a lot of anxiety for me anyway. I'm told I'm an anxious person to begin with, but, um, (laughs) but a ton of anxiety and so much pressure on myself, you know, yeah, there was a time when you know, I could hold a master class on imposter syndrome. You know, we all was, suffer from that. Oh no matter God. how many years you practice, at <laughs> least I do. I guess I can't speak for everybody, but yeah, there's so much imposter syndrome built into medicine. It really is. And it's, you know, then you kind of, then you really, so you're sitting there in your clinic or you're even your hospital and you're feeling all of these feelings of just, you know, I know that where this came out the most for me was when I interacted with, whether, you know, when I was kind of making this transition into the profession and then going on through the profession at different times, when I was burning out, it was, you know, why is the ER calling me with another damn admission about someone that is, you know, 104,000 years old that I can't do anything for? You know, there's nothing I can do to make this person better. All it's going to do, you know, all we're going to do is sit here, you know, it just leads you down this kind of dark road of all or nothing thinking and catastrophizing. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's, you know, you have to change your perspective. You literally have to try to climb yourself out of that. And our profession with maybe one or two exceptions, no corporate healthcare system offers a meaningful way for clinicians to do that is truly supportive, that is truly compassionate. And that is truly open. I will be very honest. You know, I did some time with the military in the Air Force and, 
the area, and I know that a lot of us on the civilian side of medicine like to take shots at our military colleagues, and we like to take shots at the VA system. I will tell you that the military, you know, I can only speak for my branch of service in the Air Force, does a better job by far and is at least a decade, I think, ahead of the curve in identifying people who are suffering from burnout, from, you know, from emotional trauma, getting those individuals the help that they need and removing the stigma. Is it perfect? No. But I will tell you that I, if I were struggling, I would rather be in the hands of an Air Force medical group than I would in the hands of the civilian EAP program. I've heard so. of a lot of people being burned, you know, by trying to seek out help, whether that be having to report it on future forms or being de denied for disability insurance or missing out on a promotion right. because you needed to seek therapy to help you through that process. You know, you and I were talking before the show and I'd never really thought about it before, but even my own burnout when I was at the height of that, I think I lost the humanity. And in that example that you brought up, you know, the ER calls with the 104 year old that you feel like you can't fix. Instead of thinking of that as Betty, who is somebody's mom, who's having the worst day of her life. And maybe even if you can't fix it, you could help Betty through that hard time. You can help her family realize what's coming and you realize that Betty is a human who's suffering. Absolutely. And, you know, I think that's part of one of the biggest, I think most powerful revelations in my own recovery is trying to find that humanity. I think, <clears throat> I think as you try to unwind the burnout, you know, as you try to sort of untangle this, you realize that, and again, I'm speaking for myself. Other people may have different perspectives sure. on this. Nation. I certainly, I might, you know, it's like they say in those financial services commercials, my, my experience may not mirror your experience. <laughs> I don't have um, an official disclaimer for you, but if you want to make one real quick, we can do it. My, my experience may not match yours. Oh, there it is. Oh, <laughs> but I mean, our profession, from the moment we set foot in the medical school, we are placed in this hyper-competitive, cutthroat, show no weakness, show no mercy to your competitors, not your peers, not your friends, not your teammates, your competitors, because you are competing with the other medical students in your cohort to earn the opportunity to do procedures, to do all the things necessary to get to the next tier, which would be residency. And then you're right back into that again, where you're stepping over the corpses of your broken and fallen colleagues <clears throat> to get to the next brass ring. And then you get into private practice, think, oh, it's going to be different. Oh, hell no, it's not different. Because now you're competing for medical directorships or research grants or the opportunity to maybe get better surgeries or you know, to do whatever it is you feel you should be doing. So I think for me, the first step in you know, really meaningfully recovering from my burnout was to, well, the first step was to get help. And I have a beautiful, wonderful person who has, I think literally saved me in a lot of ways, excuse me, who has saved me in a lot of ways. And the, that's the first step. And I hadn't done that before. I thought I was, a, I'm a doctor. 
I should know how to fix this myself. I don't need a therapist, a life coach, a psychologist, electroshock therapy. I, I don't need any of that crap. I'm a doctor. It's all voodoo anyway, right? You know, you know that arrogance that we're doctors, that we should be able to take care of ourselves, that we should not show weakness, that we should never show our own pain, has probably put more doctors into the grave yeah. And any war yeah. or any pan, you know, I shouldn't say anybody in pandemic, but you know, then a lot of, you know, that's certainly any war yeah. or other conflict or, um, you know, so the next thing I think is just realizing that there's a lot of things that we've been, that we've been lied to, but what it means to be a doctor, you know, somehow a doctor means achieving. It means being perfect all the time. It means that you can't ever make a mistake and God forbid, be vulnerable and talk to others. If you do. And heaven forbid you don't know the answer to something. God, we can't have doctors who recognize that they don't know something and ask a colleague or a peer for help. God, we can't have that because it's somehow, again, it makes us weak. It does, you know, we're not true doctors that way. And I think casting off all of that, I don't know what the language level of your podcast is, but Casting off that bullshit. Yeah. That belief that we have to be perfect. Not only, I think, is it important, or it was in my journey to remember the humanity of my patients, but to maybe give myself some grace and remember that I'm human too. Yeah. It's okay to yeah. cry with my patients. It's okay to feel yeah. their suffering or, you know, show them compassion. And it, unfortunately is going to happen, but I'm going to make mistakes as well. And, you know, if I'm willing to go out there and ask my colleagues for help, then if I'm lucky, you know, no one is harmed from it, but mistakes are going to happen. We're human. It's that's, I think you just said it right there, Tammy. You said it perfectly. We're human beings. You know, when we pass through the halls and we graduate, you know, we don't get positronic brains and become walking Lieutenant Commander Datas and with no emotion. Yeah. You know, we're human beings. And, you know, like I said, I mean, I think casting off all of these preconceived notions of what we are supposed to be doing was so liberating for me in my own process. It allowed me to then regain my, you know, my humanity because once I realized that a lot of the things that, you know, I'm sure med students or residents may see this. And if they do, I would just say to them, you're flat out being lied to hmm. about the, you know, this cult of perfection that's being fed to med students and residents. It's a lie. And it prevents us from being human because how the hell can we empathize and humanize with our patients? How can we not look at the 85-year-old woman whose mind is failing, literally before her family's eyes, and that family is being ripped apart by watching that loved one just become a shadow of themselves, literally watching that person start to die, and really that person will die twice, who they were as a person, and then the body that's left behind. We don't look at that person. So many times in our profession, we don't look at that person as a human being. We look at them as a bleeping social admission that's at another patient in my census that's going to keep me from getting home in time or keeping keep me from seeing the patients I want to see, or it's just a waste of my time. 
hard to get her out. So maybe your length of stay goes up. The metrics that we use are inhuman, you know, and I get there is a financial side of medicine and, and we just have to accept that is part of our system, but that's just another layer of things that dehumanize patients and doctors. And I think, you know, that's a lot of kind of what drives burnout, at least for me. Yeah, it does. The metrics, I mean, you brought it up and I wasn't going to go there, but Sorry. you did. <laughs> I, like, hey, I opened the door. Do. No, it's, but we do. I mean, that, it feeds into that. We, again, we stop looking at patients as human beings and we look at them as metric hits, yeah. you know, and it, it's, it's sad. So one of the hospitals I've worked at over the course of my career, actively and unapologetically refers to patients as customers. They're, they have a chief, oh, what the hell do they call it? A chief customer experience officer that they poached from Hilton Hotels. That tells you a fair bit about what the priority is. You know, and I, I, you know, I agree that, you know, patients should have, I mean, I, well, I, that. I, you know, I went through medicine. I came out of medicine at a time where we didn't really worry about that. Mm-hmm. Good patient outcome was they left the hospital better than when they came in. Right. And now it seems to be the pillows have to be perfect. And you know, they almost have to have an experience out there at the four seasons rather than a hospital. It's you a know, strange Ram- shift in medicine. It really is. Yeah, if Gordon Ramsay isn't down in the kitchen making you your risotto for lunch, you know, it's somehow a Prescani yet. Yeah. <laughs> so for me, it's just, it's realizing that so much of this stuff is- you know, when I brought you on yeah, this yeah. show, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. That's fine. Please go on. So if it's <laughs> honestly, if you don't stop me, I probably will keep going. So <laughs> When I brought you on today, I really thought the focus was going to be how you pivoted from, you know, being in a full scope family medicine clinic, doing everything to becoming a hospitalist. And that was how you found your love of medicine again. But when I talked to you before the show, I realized that it wasn't necessarily the setting. It was relationships and finding humanity, not only in your patients, but in yourself again. And so this show took a totally different pathway than what I expected. And I think this one is so much deeper and better than what I even thought it would have been. Glad I could help. (laughs) 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 I I guess if you want to stick with that theme of pivoting, you know, I pivoted away from the idea of being what American medicine in this century, this time period, thinks that I should, you know, I'm going to, you know, we talked about this. I unapologetically will critique people if they refer to a patient in our hospital as a number, as a room number. Uh, you know, I will sit with patients and I will talk to them like I would talk to any other human being. I, you know, probably at points in my career, and certainly when I start, since I started working up here, you know, I'll bet you there are patients that probably wonder if I'm really a doctor because I very rarely use doctor words, you know, to explain what we're doing. I really try to bring everything down to a level that people can understand because, you know, that's how we do, you know, that's how we build a bond and we form connections and we shouldn't have to hide behind our jargon, you know, but the, you know, the biggest pivot shift for me was just casting off the idea that I have to be a perfect doctor. I have to be a perfect person. I can't show emotion and I can't ask for help and I can't, you know, 
be a human being and be frail and be vulnerable and be emotional. You know, if I'm having a bad day, I can't go walk and punch a wall, but I, I do need, you know, but I think we all have, should be free to express our frustration, to express our emotion, to be vulnerable in moments. And that's just not allowed. It really isn't. I feel like there is a culture among, you know, I've made this distinction on, on, on the Facebook hospitalist group. You know, I've talked about medical directors versus administrative directors. I've made that comment a few times. And yeah, the medical directors are the ones that understand that from time to time, we're going to be human and we're going to have moments where we're not our best selves. And that should not define or end or ruin a career. Administrative directors don't care about that. You're expected to come in, do your job, be quiet, not embarrass the department, and move on. And there are, I think, unfortunately, a growing number of the latter and a shrinking number of the former in our ranks. That's true. You had mentioned a book that was kind of life-changing or, you know, helped move your perspective on medicine. Can you talk about that for just a minute? There are, there are two books, actually. I never got to the second one. So so my, my life coach slash counselor slash therapist is female. And so as she works with a lot of women. And so some of the books that she's referred me to have been written by female authors with a specific audience in mind. And it's not me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the first one is a book called Radically Content. And I cannot for the life of me think of the name of the author. But like I said, I'll get that to you. And it's about the thesis of that book is basically recognizing that society is built around a series of shoulds and that there is that that we put pressure on ourselves because we all collectively believe that there is a group of them that will somehow rain hellfire on us if we don't do the things we should do, whether it's be a certain body type or wear a certain clothing or eat and drink certain things or in the medical profession you know, be metric superstars and climb the ladder, you know, to achieve levels of rank and authority in our organizations. Um, the other book I read that I think was equally powerful was a book, and I do remember the name of this author, it's Terry Cole. And she's a licensed clinical social worker. I think she lives out in, was in New York. I don't think she's there anymore. She's somewhere else out East, but she wrote a book called Boundary Boss. <laughs> and it sounds, it just the title sounds absurd. I mean, it really does. It's not. And she's, it, the book is brilliant, but the title just seems very odd. So, you know, you, you know, I'm a six foot six strapping gun. I'm walking around carrying this boundary boss book and listening to it on my book on tape when I travel to and from the hospital. And the thesis of that book was that it is okay to identify what your core values are, what your wants and needs are, and how you want to live your life and work your career in an authentic and honest way. And to put up boundaries against those forces, entities, people that would seek to violate those core values of your own. Yeah, it's even something as simple as, you know, your medical director or your administrative site director, you know, pulling a Bill Lumberg from office space and, you know, trying to tell them that we need you to cover a shift. No, I can't. I'm going to go home to my family today. Or when the nurses call and it's well after your call shift. And they call you for something because whatever reason, it's easier to get a hold of you than simply on call. You have every right to say, no, I am off my shift. This is my time. I am going to take time for myself because I need this time to recover and to repair myself and to prepare myself for the next day. And you have every right to say to the medical director that would hold you accountable for that, no, that is my off time. If you're going to compensate me or pay me for that extra time, 
then I will be happy to do the extra work after my shift is concluded. But it, you know, if my shift ends at 6 p.m., I, that is a firm boundary for me. I will not take pages, I will not take calls, and I will not answer the nursing staff after that time. That's just one microscopic example. But that's essentially the thesis of that book is, you know, you are you have every right to create boundaries in your personal and your professional relationships and in your personal professional life that are designed to protect you and to protect your mental health and to protect your sanity and all of that. Those are things that have really dramatically changed how I view everything I do. I looked at that first book, Radically Content. It looks like Jamie Barron. That is exactly right. Thank you for keeping me from plagiarizing somebody. <laughs> <laughs> Those books now we've given like- credit. <laughs> They both sound like phenomenal books and they, it seems like something that would just come naturally. You know, this is what I've agreed to give you. These are my hours that I'm available and this is what you're compensating me for that time. But we aren't very good about setting up boundaries to kind of protect ourselves. And I think that's especially true in medicine. Yeah, I would agree. We're in environments where that type of boundary setting is significantly frowned upon. And there are absolutely. I was speaking to you know, my, my coach and therapist about this today even. You know, we live in a culture now where it is very difficult to you know, enforce those boundaries for yourself, especially in a corporate environment, because at that point, you're not a team player. You're not, doing, you're not, rowing, you're not rowing the boat with the rest of the team. It's, you know, and unfortunately, we, live in a, we are in a profession where there is very little forgiveness. And there is very little patience, it seems, for people who are struggling. I've spoken about this at length on, on social media or Facebook pages <clears throat> about how, you know, in my own state of Minnesota, I can run off in about a second a list of medical directors and hospitals that are actively blacklisting other doctors because they burned out and they did not burn out in an appropriately efficient medical manner. They burned out in an ugly, messy way which is what burnout is. It's what any, you know, mental trauma, psychological trauma can do. And, you know, these docs burned out in a messy way. I'm one of them, (laughs) you know, and they are still being ostracized and blacklisted. And, you know, I, I will say my own experience was I tried to just get hired on for some per diem work. And, you know, I had, you know, the way that it was phrased to me, the way, and it was, they were desperate. I mean, they, they were looking for, I think anybody with a pulse and an MD and a Fisher-Price stethoscope could have arguably gotten this position. They were so desperate for staffing at that point. And, you know, I finally reached out to the medical director and asked, you know, hey, what's going on? And this, I won't use gender, but this director flat out came back and said, we heard about you from your other hospital and we don't want to import that drama here. Okay. Well, yeah. thank you very much. And I hope you have good luck trying to find someone that fits a mold and good, good luck to you there, uh, boss. <laughs> you know, and uh, that that's when I think that's the day I, that's the day that the phrase administrative site director came into my head as being real, because that person really in very many respects, and I'm probably being a bit harsh, but I think clearly has crossed over the line from being a physician colleague to an administrative leader. And I think that when that occurs, you know, it's just hard to look at that person, somebody that you can actually look to as a compassionate member of the profession, because clearly they're not. I mean, hope that they treat their patients better than they're treating their colleagues. Yeah, you're right. It's this profession is not very forgiving. 
I hope that we can do better for our medical students and residents who are coming up through the ranks and provide them with more of that emotional support and help them remember to find their own humanity, to find the humanity in their patients. And maybe they'll continue that love of medicine, you know, that we all hope for when we're bright-eyed and bushy-tailed going through medicine, the reason we got into medicine in the first place. I agree. I mean, I talk to a lot of med students. I talk to a lot of PA students even now because I think, you know, they're coming up through the ranks and they're taking spots in the profession. And I tell them a lot of the same things that I tell med students and residents about, you know, just remember to be yourself. Remember to love this profession, love your patients and don't believe the BS that's going to be thrown at you every single day that you have to do this or you have to do that. You don't have to do it. Your only job in this profession, the only reason any of us do this at all is because at some point in our lives, we fell in love with biology or chemistry or both. And we made it that love of science to a love of doing good for other people. And we looked around where we could use the gifts we had and developed and had been given. And we settled on medicine. We found medicine. I shouldn't say settled, but we found medicine. And we go into the profession with this idea that we can use the gifts we've been given, intellect, the wisdom, the insight, to help human beings. And between the time we walk in the medical school to the time we start getting somewhere into the you know, first quarter or first third of our careers, you know, we discover that none of those things are really what seem to be the priority of our profession. It's certainly not the priority of our leaders. It's certainly not the priority of the hospital administrators or the clinic administrators or the, you know, the site leads and all of that. It's about achieving metrics. It's about, you know, it's about hitting targets. You know, it's in that respect, we're no different than Merrill Lynch or Goldman Sachs or Target, you know? And so it's, I think, incumbent upon each and every one of us to realize that's what we're walking into. That's what our profession has become. And we have to find a way where however we can to almost become the, to find that humanity, to find that love of medicine, to remember why we all got into this. And you know, the darkness of our profession sucks us down. God, someone's going to listen to this and think I hate medicine and I hate my job. And I actually, <laughs> I actually don't. I love our profession and I love the people who are within it. That's, I think, why I'm so passionate about reaching out and getting the word out to others is that there is more to this than metric chasing. And there's more to this than what we're being told is our priority. Our priority is the care of the individual patient in front of us. And if we rise to leadership, then the priority is to, you know, to make sure that we create an environment where our colleagues are safe, protected, and can deliver that level of care that they can practice their love of human life and of science and of all that they've learned to help other human beings. That's our priority. You know, the bean counters can figure out the math and make the lights stay on and buy us fancy new gadgets when we need them, you know, our job needs to be what we do. We, need, we just need to take it back for ourselves because no one else is coming to give it to us. You know, the, True. the medical cavalry is not coming over the hill to liberate us. You know, we're gonna have to liberate ourselves. And uh, you know, that that's why I just feel really strongly about this. I think I've been in the, on the other end of this and I'm coming out the back end of a lot of negative stuff to be a better, more positive clinician. than I think I've ever been in almost 19 years of doing this and, uh, you know, I hope others follow. (laughs) (laughs) Well, James, thanks for being on the show. You made this way more meaningful than I could have even hoped. You know, like I said, I thought it was going to be this, you know, I was doing A and I pivoted to B and life's great, but 
you just, you really got down to the nuts and the bolts of kind of what's causing this burnout drama that's going on in our profession right now. And I think you're exactly right. It's a continuum. It's not, I'm burnt out today and tomorrow I'm fine. It, it waxes and wanes, you know, based on where you are in your career at that particular moment in time. I think so too. I agree. And I, it's been an honor being here. It's been an honor talking to you. And I'm glad that we were able to kind of make that transition from one part of the spectrum to the other here. And it's been fun. I hope to be able to come back someday. I would love that. I want to hear where you're at a year from now on your journey. So <laughs> I'll, I'll book it now. Perfect. <laughs> so, thank you so much. Absolutely. And everyone, thanks for tuning in to today's Grand Rounds. I hope you'll be back with us next week. 